I am Marlon Jones, the Career Skills Architect, and this is View from the Big Chair Podcast, Examining the Cost to Be the Boss. The purpose of this podcast is to share information with students in sports administration programs and with young professionals and those who are underemployed in sports administration. We talk with guests who sit in the big chair, those persons who are directors of athletics, who are head coaches, commissioners, or directors of different areas within athletic administration. We learn from their journey, and we also learn what skill sets they look for when they are hiring for positions so that you know how to prepare so that you can get to your own big chair. Today, our guest on View from the Big Chair, examining the cost to be the boss, is Catherine Statz. She is director of the Office of Gender Equity at DePaul University. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you for having me. This is such a privilege and a treat. Tell our listeners when and how you developed your love for sports. Oh, gosh. You know what? I think it was... um, after I had a growth spurt at age 12 and I, um, people finally paid attention to me and, and helped me along and realized that a kid who was 5'11 might be coachable, right? And I got a shot at uh, playing grade school sports because I, happened, I was fortunate enough to um, be gangly and tall. Tall always helps. <laughs> Walk our listeners through your professional journey. Okay. Um, well, um, because I had the opportunity to play college sports and interact with um, a person who became the most important mentor and role model in my life, uh, who was my coach and our athletic director, uh, the late Brenda Weir, um, I uh, was uh, made aware that there even was the idea of being in sports if you didn't want to be a a coach. Uh, I didn't, I didn't really, I couldn't visualize that. And so my journey started with Brenda Weir telling me about an internship at the NCA, which is where I met our uh, gracious podcast hostess. Um, And so um, my journey began as an intern in Kansas City, um, learning about the NCA enforcement process. And that was um, the trajectory that changed my life. I probably would be uh, um, working in public relations or um, trying to make a living working for a newspaper if that hadn't happened to me. Brenda was a gem. She she definitely was. You've worked both in a conference office setting and on a campus. Describe the different challenges that each of those professional environments brings for a young administrator. Sure. The conference that I worked at was the Great Midwest Conference, which um, is is no longer, you know, morphed into a a different conference, uh, Conference USA. Um, 
So my experience was probably pretty different from what others um, would experience at a conference office because it was it was small. Um, we probably had, um, gosh, I bet we only had 12 employees. Um, and so that was a blessing and a curse. Um, it was terrific to be on a small team because when you're on a team that small, everyone really matters. And you knew that you mattered uh, when you did a great job and you knew that you mattered when you didn't show up. Um, so um that was very different for me because it was sort of an extension of being on a team and um, being, being uh, streamlined, you know? Um, and then when I got to a campus, I still felt like I was part of a team, but it was just, um, you know, you were more spread out. Um, when I worked at Conference USA, we were probably in a thousand square feet on Wacker Drive here in Chicago and everyone could see each other coming and going and, um, and in, in you know, in that role, I worked for Mike Slive before he became the famous commissioner of the Southeastern Conference. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but being on campus is so terrific because then it, you know what I'm going to say because you're around student athletes, and there's just no substitute for that. Being in a conference office is great, but you only see the student athletes when you go to a championship, mm-hmm. um, and so you miss that eyeballing of the purpose of your job every day that you get when you get to be on a campus. Yes, yes, that that student interaction on a daily basis is really yep. really great. Yeah. Now you started uh, in the conference office working as director of legislative services. What are the duties of that position? (laughs) Um, Well, at that time, the duties were to really support the membership and help um, be a liaison for them uh, to understand the NCA rulebook, uh, which was not as streamlined at that time. You know, uh, the manual was all three divisions and you, you had to know every interpretation of every rule and Um, So my role was to be that person with our member institutions and also to, uh, you know, have that space that that I could talk to them about what they thought might be a way to change the legislation. Um, If I could, I I have this memory that I I it means a lot to me of. I don't know if you remember this, Marlene, but back in the day, student athletes could not um, uh, could not get their own frequent flyer miles. Yes, I remember. Right. And it was like, oh, no, that's too big of a benefit and blah, blah, blah. You know, that's just not something that we think is OK. And it, it, people are incredulous today when they hear that. But it, that was the rule. Yep. And I remember speaking to primarily women, uh, you know, senior women administrators who were saying, I got to fly my kids all over the place and they can't charter. And why can't they get the miles? Because they don't get the benefit of the privilege of uh, a dedicated charter. And so um, Brenda Weir and I really uh, championed legislation to allow student athletes to keep their miles. And um, you know, it's, it's something that is, you know, a, a bastion of the past, but it was, it was one of the most impactful things that, that I got to be a part of, you know, and so that was, that was part of my role uh, in the conference is to try to uh, gather um, places that we had commonality where we did think that we might be able to change legislation for the better. 
Yeah, I remember that was a huge discussion. Um, <laughs> it's like, why can't they have their miles? Oh, because it would just be wrong. But nobody right. could tell you why it would be wrong, but it was just, it would be wrong. To give right. them anything was seen as wrong. Well, can I also say too, sure. I mean, the, the irony is that one of the conferences that was opposed to this was the Big Ten Conference because all their institutions were drivable at that time. So they thought it was a competitive advantage. Ah. Uh-huh. So what, think of the irony of probably the most powerful conference that we have today being being opposed for, for very specific reasons. Yes. Yes. Yeah. There, there are always very specific reasons as to why legislation was either favored or, or not favored. That mm-hmm. usually had to do with the budget of the conference that was crafting that legislation. Uh-huh. Now, people hear about NCAA enforcement, but they don't understand what an enforcement rep does. What are the duties of that position? <laughs> well, I can tell you what it was when I was in that role. Gotcha. I'm sure that it's changed just like everything else has changed as, as we grow older and they, they uh, uh, morph into different things. But, <clears throat> you know, an, an enforcement rep um, is a person who is assigned to take a deeper dive into allegations of potential violations. And so um, when I... When I worked at the NCA, I would be I primarily received cases assigned to me where student athletes were um, alleged to have received benefits. It, I, I didn't necessarily work on those big famous cases where it was an institutional issue. Uh-huh. It was more of a, a very specific, um, you know, did student athletes get paid for work that they didn't do or um, were they involved in a highly significant recruiting violation? So to answer your question, and I'm digressing and I apologize, is that uh, enforcement reps have to know the legislation very well, and they have to be willing to go on campus and um, sit with involved parties and, and try to get their perspective. And, um, and you know, at that time, I, I would say that I don't know that we spent a lot of time talking about being empathetic or being trauma-informed or <laughs> um, we were just trying to get in and get out and, and try our best to objectively gather facts and um, then present them to a decision maker, whether it was the Committee on Infractions or um, uh, in some cases, it might be an NCA staff member. Got it. Help. Oh, yes. Now, okay. You teach negotiation skills. How important is it for young professionals to develop skills in that area if they're going to have longevity in this industry? That is such a great question. And it's such a fine line, I think. Um, Because, of course, we want people to be able to advocate for themselves. And we want people who will... Uh, find a voice for themselves. Um, The negotiation that I taught was, um, I think, intending to help people, um, you know, the the language that I would use would be expand the pie of options. 
right? So a lot of people see negotiation as a zero sum game, that there's a winner and a loser. And um, when I was in law school, the woman that was my instructor, Andrea Schneider, taught the class focusing on trying to uh, not have it be so, um, uh, you know, a winner and a loser. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I do think that, I do think that people who are new to any industry need to be able to advocate for themselves. Um, I, I just think that you got to be really careful about making certain you're in an environment that negotiation is the appropriate way to get there. Right, uh, right. right. Because it doesn't work in every situation. Right. Yeah. There's some things that are, they, they still are non-negotiable and there's a reason why. And so you got to read the room. And I, I feel like that's the skill that, that everyone needs, but particularly people who are just learning about a culture is read the room and then read the room again and make sure that you read it right. Uh, good job. Good. Yes. Read it and then read it again before <laughs> you act. Now at DePaul, in the athletic department, you were both an associate athletic director and a senior associate. What were your main responsibilities? I was really fortunate that I was given responsibility to work with both genders of sports teams. You know, uh, early on, you saw women being promoted within college athletics, but only being allowed to work with women's teams. And that was something that was really important to me to uh, be at an institution that wouldn't pigeonhole me that way. Um, so I was able to oversee a lot of different programs at DePaul. In fact, um, all of our programs other than men's and women's basketball at one point. And so it, it, I was just really fortunate um, that no one said, well, you didn't play that sport. You shouldn't oversee it or you're not a men's soccer player. So you don't have, you can't learn enough to um, work with those coaches. So that was a big part of my responsibilities. I, um, because I am burdened with a law degree, I um, was responsible and I loved uh, negotiating contracts and writing contracts for um, the athletic department, working with our institution, of course, but um, that was a, that was a big part of my job that I, that I really loved. Um, I worked with our, our student athlete advisory council that we called our captain's council. So I got to be in the room with student athletes that really cared a lot about, um, leadership and trying to promote our brand and also trying to give feedback to our athletic department. Um, and, I, I still had responsibility to oversee the compliance function, which was um, which was kind of my my foot in the door, and so I I enjoyed doing that. Um, and I, I think you know the piece that I would share is that I I also was really lucky that I was able to run some championships, um, whether it were championships that I that we were hosting or. Um, making certain that student athletes were taken care of when we made an NCAA tournament field or something like that. So um, th that would, I'll stop there. You know, I'm very fortunate to have a variety of things to challenge me every day. And when you were hiring sport administrators, what were the top three skills you were looking for in a candidate? Hmm. Um, I think that, um, 
number one, I would certainly want to look, I would certainly be drawn to someone who um, uh, would be willing to stand behind their decisions, so have that presence um, to be firm and decisive. Um, uh, I always look for someone, if I, if, if I could, who did have some coaching or background as a student athlete so that they had walked in that space. You know, it's really easy to say, oh, the, uh, you know, a team doesn't need that if you don't understand why they, they need something. Um, so it, when, when I could, I, I would certainly um, be looking for that. And again, not that you had to play that sport, but that you had to have some exposure um, to to collegiate sports if possible. And then uh, I think as time went on, um, I, did, I did realize that looking for people who had strong emotional intelligence um, was going to really carry the day and, and could um, put a Band-Aid over a lot of other <laughs> shortfalls, <laughs> you know? And that's a, hard, that's a hard thing to assess, right? I mean, how do you assess that, Marlene, as you're thinking about somebody walking in the door. That was my next question is because so many people are able to mask who they are long enough to mm -hmm. get through the recruitment process. Mm -hmm. And so their real self doesn't show up until later and they've been on your staff for a while. Yeah, you're right. Thing that happens, what's it called? You know, the, the your your bias that that everyone has to hire people who are like themselves. Yes, yes. I did that once at the NCA. I hired an intern, and then we did a, uh, one of those, um, you know, those personality assessments. Yep, and that person answered every single question the same way that I had. I was mortified that I, I picked my exact. You quote. picked yourself. <laughs> And I think if we can just get more people to realize when they're doing that and stop and take a step yeah. back, that's one of the ways we can get more diversity. But people have to be aware of it first. Because like you said exactly. you didn't even know. Exactly. <laughs> what has um, been your biggest challenge transitioning from the athletic side of the house to the academic side of the house and now working with the entire university as director of the office of gender equity. You know, I think for me, it's, um, it's been, I'm, I'm acting like you didn't, you, you know, you didn't tell me to expect a question like this. Like this is a perplexing question, but it's a hard one. Um, I think that in athletics, we have this um, either edge of the knife that we're uh, oftentimes uh, come to the table as very competitive people. Mm -hmm. And being competitive is what draws us to work and want to out outwork others. And, um, you know, it's what made me an okay athlete because I knew that I wasn't very talented, but I decided I'd work really hard. And um, so, of course, work ethic is the key to being successful in any position, but I really think that I had to sit down and look at the competitiveness piece that was motivating me 
And, you know, there's no space for that really within the work that I do now. But it was just this idea almost of competing with myself, you know, and um, there's there there isn't a roadmap for this for the work that that you and I do. And um, but yet I was constantly relying on that's just that sort of fallback of being competitive. And I think I've gotten better with that and tried to rechannel that in a way that still lends itself to a good work ethic. You did an interview with one of the magazines at DePaul, and you said it takes a unique set of skills to be a Title IX coordinator. <laughs> what are those unique skills? Yeah, I think that might have been a day that I used the word unique to me, to, to me like, you got to be crazy, you know? <laughs> because it's, it, it is, it is, when do I get to turn this back on you and see what, you, how you would answer that? Um, see, see what you think. Um, you, I feel like you have to have emotional intelligence, a number one, you, uh, you, you, you have to be able to assess peaks and valleys and pace yourself and, um, uh, be able to prioritize to the extent that you can with things coming in through a fire hose and mm -hmm. um, wanting to care for every single person who reports being impacted by sexual misconduct. Um, I, I think that maybe unique was also, you know, there, there are times that you got to find a way to laugh and usually it's laugh at, at yourself. Um, you know, these aren't circumstances that you can laugh at very often. So you've got to find a way to, um, not take yourself very seriously if, if you can, if, if that's possible. Um, I think that at our institution, we're really lucky. We have two full-time investigators and a case manager. Oh, that's amazing. It is amazing. I mean, we got 22,000 students, so. Okay. We're, we're very lucky. Um, and so for me, trying to be a good leader of those three individuals who care deeply, deeply, deeply about what they do um, I, I think is critical. Um, and then trying to figure out the degree to which, um, you should be the face of the office and be able to speak what we do within the institution and try to help people help you by buying into what you're trying to do. Um, I feel like we, you know, my team and I have to do that every day to, um, we just can't take for granted that anyone understands what we do and how we do it. And I think so. that's the education piece of the job mm -hmm. that a lot of people spend so much time because they have so many cases to investigate. But that education piece is so critical. And that's one of the things I found I had to work to make sure we were doing because just in terms of language, we would have someone report a sexual assault. And so I'm contacting the chief of police and I'm contacting general counsel and I'm trying to get uh, in touch with the victim's advocate and get everybody lined up because we have this sexual assault case. And then you meet with the complainant and someone touched their behind. Now, why that should not have happened, it can't be a sexual assault if there was no penetration. So now... We've got to calm everybody that I just called back down because they're on high alert. And it's like, 
Okay, it was sexual misconduct, but it wasn't sexual assault. And that's when you realize how much education you have to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, too, um, you know, another part that I didn't mention, I'd be curious to hear what, what your experience has been, if we can, is sure. um, trying to be an advocate for students who are pregnant. Yes. Um, because it's part of our role as in, in the Title IX world. And, um, you know, working with faculty who want to be helpful uh, and don't really know how and sometimes can be skeptical and um um so you know that also seems to be a, a place that um you, you've got to you've got to earn a little credibility within your campus community that you know if, if i'm going to make a request of a faculty member it's still going to be couched in you're the leader of your classroom and you need to do what's reasonable for your classroom, but let's not have a knee jerk that no matter what the request is, is that it's, that it's unreasonable. Right. Yes. Yes. And recently, recently I had a situation with a male student who was on the parenting side of the pregnant and parenting student where his wife was getting ready to have a child. And he told his professors, he was going on fraternity leave. So again, here we are with language. And so one of the professors wanted to contact me to let me know that this student was going around lying to the professors because he did research and found out that there's no such thing as paternity leave for students because they're not employees. And I said, well, technically you're right in that it's not paternity leave, but he is allowed under Title IX to have an accommodation for pregnant and parenting students. So he may have used the wrong language, but he is correct in that he is allowed to have an accommodation. Yeah. Well, and how about let's think about uh, acknowledging parents who want to be good parents, you know? <laughs> yes. And making it easier for them to do so. Yeah. yeah. I worked at a university once that had a daycare on site. And when my daughter was young, I was like, oh, this would be a great place to take her because it's, you know, real close. And I soon realized that daycare wasn't built for us. It was built for students because it was yep. closed at every university holiday, including spring break and fall break and Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I'm like, well, I can't have the child with me in the office just because it's spring break. Right. <laughs> right. But I mean, it's another example of just how lucky we are with the things that we get to learn. Right. I, you know, um, I, I learned in the last month that women who are pregnant often experience carpal tunnel. I didn't know yes, that. Yes. I had no idea. And so I can imagine a faculty member being highly suspect of that, but guess what? It's objectively true. It, it happens pretty frequently, you know? So. And yeah. it's our job to make sure that that student can continue in class and progressing towards that degree while they have a medical condition, which is what pregnancy is. Exactly, exactly. What is big, the biggest life lesson this career has taught you? 
you know, the things that people tell you when you're not sure that you've earned their trust and how sacrosanct that trust is. And um, that no matter how hard a day is, I'm not, I'm, I'm not walking in the shoes of the people that are coming to me. I'm, I'm trying to help them and I'm privileged that I get a mechanism to try to help them. But, um, uh, you know, realizing that that could change at any moment. Right. And, um, so, and being in a place that is willing to fund what the work that we do at the level that it does so that we legitimately can try to advocate for change, whatever that looks like in a given day, right? And it changes daily. What has been your biggest professional challenge and how did you overcome it? Honestly, in, in my role today, um, I it, it was very, very challenging to try to effectuate some of the changes that came about from the federal government during the pandemic. Um, it, we were asked to rewrite very significant policies in ways that we wouldn't have written them had we had a choice in the matter. Um, so I'm not, I'm not very good at leaving my opinion at the door. Um, I've gotten better over time. Um, but those were days that were just so hard because I was working with people that were angry. I was angry um, that having this, not, not just the content of the re- regulations as they were, they were intended to change, but just the fact that, you know, we were trying to survive in higher education and we were, we were faced with people dying around us and being sick around us. And yet all of a sudden we were supposed to reprioritize this kind of stuff. And um so I, I overcame these frustrations by finding people that would work with me to get the job done and lift that boulder up the hill in the three months that we had to effectuate these regulations. Is that, is that resonate with you at all? Oh, most definitely. It was, <laughs> we're in a pandemic and we're not on campus and you want us to completely overhaul a system in, like you said, mm-hmm. three months. And the addition mm-hmm. of those live hearings that you know would re-traumatize complainants who actually did experience sexual assault and to have to explain to them, after you talk to me and after we get this report done, you're going to have to sit with the person who allegedly assaulted you and relive this again. That was hard. Yes. And for, for me too, even when I took aside that, because there were days that I couldn't even, you know, that was just sort of paralyzing, but just to think about some of the parts of the requirements that, um, um, we're going to involve faculty and staff in a way that we, that, you know, there are campuses that still, I'm not sure how they can accommodate these regulations where they have, uh, unionized staff. We have a union. it's very hard. They are only interesting to you and I, but um, I would just like rage against the machine, you know. But uh, we got it. We got it done. So, but it, you know, it teaches you that you've got it. You've got to have allies, and you've you've got to be able to collaborate with people um, to achieve something that's hard. Relationships are so important in this business, and with the last two years, people being confined and not being able to gather in person. 
how can young professionals develop relationships that are going to help them in their careers? That is the question of the hour, isn't it? Because it's, it, you know, for us in Chicago, it, 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 in, in any big city, you know, this trade-off of how much more productive you can be when you don't have to do that 90-minute commute, mm-hmm. really hard to ignore, right? And yet you and I both know that relationships that you form face-to-face last forever. Yes. And, um, you know, I knew you in 1989, and wow. you and I are still in touch, right? I mean, did I just out you on your age? I just didn't do <laughs> Because you were seven then, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, you know, I, I think in athletics, um, people were forced to be back sooner than other parts of the institution. And they're, they're starting to reforge those relationships because they have to, because they have events and they, um, they're, you know, you, it's hard to do a basketball game remotely. Exactly. Uh, I found, you know, it's hard. Um, you can do a rifle meet remotely, but you can't do a basketball game. Um, so I, I think for people who are, are in athletics right now, um, to the extent that you can make yourself comfortable and start to begin um, being in spaces with people, the, those face-to-face relationships, um, they carry the day. And, you know, sometimes my team will say, well, I, you know, I already know those people. I, I've dealt with them on Zoom for two years. And I'm like, no, you, you, you don't know them. You, you don't know them the way that you think that you do. And, and you don't know people like you do when you have a cup of coffee together or you, um, you know, you, you go to an event together and, and all those things that we took for granted before, but now they feel awkward, right? They feel different, I remember when we first came back, I was like, I couldn't even make eye contact with people live. It, it, and, I, and I'm and i a pretty social person. And we, we I feel like, and again, I don't want to be insensitive, but I feel like we just, we've got to get, we, we got to figure out what the new normal is, yeah. but, but it's not being, it's not being in silos and it's not being isolated. And handshakes and hugs are very awkward now, mm-hmm. but they were just standard. Mm-hmm. What has been the biggest sacrifice that you had to make to be successful in your athletics career? <laughs> um, I think I think that um, time, time. Um, I was married to my job for a long time, literally. I. Um, and, and that, there's no one to blame for that, but myself, because I loved what I did, but I also didn't know anything different. And um, until you have a, a mechanism to see things in a different way, whether it's a dog or a partner or uh, whatever it is, um, I, I know that there were, there were weeks that I worked 80, 90 hours a week. And so did you. And Easily. So, and, and people have to do that sometimes. But um, I, I think the sacrifice of time 
when you look back and you realize you didn't even know it was passing mm. because you were so ensconced in what in what you were doing um that that you know i, I kind of clock that now in in a different way do you agree oh most definitely definitely yeah <laughs> it's you you wake up and 10 years have gone by and you blink and another 10 years have gone by and it, it hit me when I was working in compliance doing certification because you see the birth dates of the student athletes you're certifying. And they were born in years where I had been working full time for years. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Luckily, you find time along the way to have those to have kids and, you know, do that. Um, I always say, I, I would get so frustrated when parents would say to me, do you have kids? Yes. And because you know, I, I, I didn't do that. And I, I, I would, I would say, yeah, I have a thousand kids. Um, because I, you know, that, that was hurtful to me, but I, I, I appreciate it in a different way today, you know? Yes. But yeah, here. I was 44 when I had my daughter. So I, it was people like I saw Betsy Stevenson adopted a child at a late age and it was a lady at Bradley. And when I would go to uh, NACWA, which is now Women Leaders, and I saw some of these women, you know, adopting kids and I said, oh, I can I can do that. I didn't completely miss it. Right, right. So they were well, the ones who I led did. me to that decision. Yeah. Well, I, you know, all the sometimes people say, oh, my gosh, so I. I, I got to get going. I got to get married. And I always say, I waited till I was 49. There's no rush. There's no rush. <laughs> uh, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to young Catherine when she started her career way back as an intern at the NCAA? <laughs> I'd say invest in more comfortable shoes. You know, <laughs> do not give in. I've got a bunion here that has 1989 written on it. Um, but I would say um, try to find a way to listen to people who tell you to enjoy the journey while you're on it. And you, you got, try not to let your head get so pushed down into whatever it is that, that you can't see the forest for the trees. And, you know, that working hard, it, it matters and it's important. And, and that's how many of us are where we are. But um, to try to uh, incorporate just a little bit more balance. What motivates you to keep working in higher education? Mm -hmm. Um. I, I think the transformative, uh, you know, characteristic of higher ed is 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 what is what did that. Um, for me, you know, I've always worked in private higher education, and um, so especially at DePaul, we're highly, highly mission driven, and um, and I've been really fortunate that paul is an institution that was named after and modeled after the guy that invented charity on a, a global basis um I, I don't know that if if i worked at a place that didn't have that um soul and character that that uh higher ed would resonate with me in the way that it does maybe it would um it probably would but i i've just been so lucky um to be at a place that really is, is trying to serve people who would not otherwise have an opportunity for education. And um, 
to be able to, <clears throat> pardon me, um, eyeball those that you're that you work with and not be removed from them. It's it's just it carries the day, doesn't it? It does. Now it's overtime. Book, do you think aspiring sports administrators should read? I will say, I am not a person who reads a ton of nonfiction. Okay. I'm, I'm weird that, um, you know, I think after you go to law school, you want to read for pleasure so much that you, for me, it, me- it means fiction. But I was thinking back about a book that I read <clears throat> um, a while ago. So this isn't going to be like the, you know, the Phil Jackson 11 Rings uh, recommendation. Okay. So get ready. Um, I read this book called In These Girls, Hope is a Muscle. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. And no. it's about these high school kids that um, in, in Connecticut or New Hampshire or somewhere out east. And it was just about the transformative power of sport and how it, um, it motivated these young um, women to play basketball. And um, I gave that book to a, a little super fan that we had at DePaul a long time ago. And I thought, oh, she's going to think that it's just, you know, a little cheesy. And, um, but she loved it and it, it changed her trajectory too. And so um, it, it's an obscure one. I can't give you the author right now, but um, it, it, it meant a lot to me. It really impacted me to think about the, um, the power of sport. Okay app can you not live without and why (laughs) oh gosh um let's see i think you're gonna laugh i think you're gonna laugh about this and it's you're gonna put me in the nerd category but it's okay geocaching.com oh have you heard of it no what does that do so so there's this thing called geocaching where you go around and you search for little things that people have hidden um in in plain sight all over the world right these little it's not people are like is it pokemon i'm like no it's it's just it's just this little community where people do this and it, it draws you to parks and uh monuments and and places that you might never find and so this app is the way that you can um, find, record, place um, these little geocaches. Okay. I bet you said that one before, right? No, no, that's a first. (laughs) What social media site should aspiring sports administrators follow? I I am the worst person to ask that. I am truly the worst. I guess I'm going to say LinkedIn. Okay. but that, but, but that is so lame because I just do not have my fingers on that pulse. So you can even strike that answer because I know that it, it probably suggests that I'm a dinosaur. No, that LinkedIn is a good one. What is your go-to inspirational quote? I would say, um, believe it or not, this isn't super inspirational, but it guides me. Uh, the famous David Letterman quote, there is humor everywhere. Take a look around. You know, don't take yourself too seriously. That's that's a good way to end. Thank you so much for your time, Catherine. We greatly appreciate it. There's a lot of information here, not just for aspiring sports administrators, but those who are interested in Title IX and the work that is done by Title IX coordinators as well. So we thank you so much and we wish you the best. 
Well, thank you for being an inspiration for me. It's my pleasure. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I hope that the notes you took from our guests will help you as you plan and build your career. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. View from the big chair, examining the cost to be the boss. I'm your host, Marlon Jones, and I thank you again for listening.